Welcome to Cooking the Books with me, Jenny Smith, a weekly podcast series about books in which food is the story. This week, I've passed the microphone over to my favourite bookseller, Elizabeth Perry, also known on Instagram as EC Reads, who feeds me many of the latest novels where food is the meta story. In fact, it was Elizabeth's insights into the foodie subtext of Sarah Paretsky's best-selling Chicago-based crime novels that had the author signing up to the podcast immediately. Paretsky's Deadland is the latest in the series to feature her private detective, V.I. Wachowski. When Indemnity Only, the first in the series, was published back in 1982, Paretsky revolutionised the genre with this tough-talking female private eye and, in 2002, won the Cartier Diamond Dagger for lifetime achievement. Elizabeth has been reading Paretsky since she was 14 and admits that she is a massive nerd-level fan. She couldn't wait to hear her full food moments in Deadland. But first, she asked Sarah to give her a little background to both the novel and the central character. Deadland was a book that it, it actually took me quite a while to pull it together, but it, it its kind of focus is a, one of the horrible mass murders that just rock America on an almost daily basis these days. And it's the it's the, the underneath story is what gave rise to the person who did the shooting and then the ramifications and the way that lives were forever both ruined and changed by having been part of that kind of mass shooting. And um, the character, I feel like I need your permission to call her by her first name. What can I call her? V.I.? Well, I call her V.I., actually. Yeah. Her friends call her Vic, but I I always think of her only as V.I. And really, that's because when I started the, writing the first book, I knew that I wanted someone who reflected Chicago's... Chicagoans have fierce attachments to their place of national origin, and so I thought since one of my grandfathers came from Poland, I would give her a Polish identity. And I'm not good with last names. And I thought, well, Warsaw's in Poland, Warszawski, that has to be Polish. But then I didn't have a first name. And the initials came to me with Warszawski's, but it was months and months into writing the first book that I actually thought of the names that I burdened her with, yeah. poor thing. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't realise that the initials came first, but I think of her as VI as well. So I feel like that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so your first food moment in Deadland. Um, if you'd like to read uh, the first paragraph. So this is very close to the beginning, and VI has just picked up her goddaughter. Well, from a holding cell <laughs> at a police cell. station. Yes. Bernie is a very impetuous young woman with limited impulse control, and she's she's a hockey player. She's at university on a hockey scholarship, and her roommate and good friend is Angela, who's a basketball player. I didn't remember the drive home or putting Bernie and Angela into a lift car. I went to bed without undressing and woke some five hours later. Peter had taken off leaving a note in glyph-like characters that read, Happy Day After Birthday. He'd also made an artwork breakfast plate, a croissant with a chunk of rubiola, one of my favorite cheeses, surrounded by orange segments. I was thinking seriously of falling in love. <laughs> so why does that particular plate of food inspire such feeling in VI? <laughs> because it, it looks like a work of art with the orange slices carefully laid out around the plate. And Peter, her lover, is an archaeologist. 
so he writes the, the the note is like a love letter in that he's gone to the trouble of of putting Roman letters so that they look as though they were ancient glyphs, and um, it, it just it feels like a very intimate thing. At least it did to me that mm-hmm. that he does. would write in that kind of of way and go to the trouble of creating something so beautiful yeah. to look at. I think it's a really lovely moment. It says a lot to me about how you can use food to show love for somebody and the kind of act of preparing even something really simple like a croissant and some fruit. Um, You can really show some intimacy. And I like that because um, VI is often, I think she sometimes holds people at quite a distance. I I think that's a fair thing to say, yes. (laughs) Not to hold them at a distance, but kind of shoves them at a distance. Yes, yeah. And I like that sentence of her thinking of falling in love. I like that it could be cheese and a croissant that does that, maybe for VI. (laughs) So I think that leads quite nicely into something I've always wanted to ask you about, which is VI's opinions on coffee. Um, She seems to have quite strong ones, although I know I have horribly low standards for coffee, so that might say more about my terrible instant coffee that I drink all the time (laughs) than it does about VIs. But yes, so what are your feelings on coffee? Does VI feel the way that you do? Yes, this is one of those instances where there's no separation between the character and the writer. And one of the first things that I do in in a new city is try to find really good espresso. And specifically, I like really good cortados. So I was started my trip in the UK at Granite Noir in Aberdeen. And my first day, I arrived at uh, eight in the morning on a a Thursday from the States. And the first thing I did after being decanted at the hotel was to start walking the streets looking for espresso. And I tried, I think I was there for 36 hours and I tried five different coffee bars And I I found some that was okay, but never at a high standard. But I'm uh, staying in London in uh, Dorset Square, quite near the Baker Street, uh, um, I was going to say L Station, but um, underground. (laughs) And there's a wonderful, I can't think of what it's called, but right on Baker Street, very unexpectedly across from Sherlock Holmes Residence. There's a really fabulous espresso bar. Oh. It's one of the reasons that I keep coming back to this particular hotel, that it's just a five-minute walk from the hotel. Oh, right. That's a good tip. So on to the second uh, food scene. So this is shortly <laughs> after somebody has been found dead, um, and V.I. and Peter are cooking dinner together. Um, Would you like to read the first few sentences of this one as well? Introduce the food. Peter opened a bottle of Brunello I'd been saving while I cooked up treche pasta with mushrooms and parmesan. We could talk about the night's drama only in short, disjoint bursts. I really like these moments in your books where uh, VI sits down and makes pasta and drinks wine because that is my favourite comfort meal anyway. Um, But I'd really like to hear you talk a little bit about why maybe Italian cooking is something that comes up for VI quite often. VI's mother was a refugee from Italy and specifically she came uh, because she was part Jewish. She was a refugee from Mussolini's race laws. And VI's Childhood is dominated really by her mother. Her father was a Chicago policeman. His heritage was Polish. But V.I. is never eating Polish food in the books. 
and it's always Italian food. Her mother made her own pasta by hand, and there are times in some of the books where V.I. feels bad that she's falling short of Gabriella's standards for food preparation, that she buys ready-made <laughs> pasta. But it's actually, it's it's also comfort food that I turn to. And <clears throat> lately, this treche pasta is two kind of elbow macaronis that are braided together, and I, I don't know why I like them so much. But this is my idea of on a cold winter evening, I just I saute mushrooms and spinach and uh, cook up the pasta and put it all together with some cheese. And then lately I've started drinking expensive Italian wines. And, <laughs> and Brunello is currently my favorite. It's just lovely, and you open a bottle and you already feel happier because it's just such a lovely red and it's just a rich taste. I think these scenes is why um, I thought of you immediately when Jilly and I were talking about food and fiction, um, because although there's so much else going on in your books, there's so much chaos, there are crimes, there are murders, um, there seems to be always these little oases of calm when VI sits down and she cooks and she eats pasta and she drinks wine. Um, and I think it really humanises her. And that's a really lovely thing in such a powerful character um like vi i really like those moments where she just sort of sits down and takes care of herself um and i find it quite interesting that often she turns to italian cooking um with her mother's heritage and um kind of the way that food can be a home from home do you think that's yes, true i think that is true and i would say it in my personal history, no. I mean, growing up as I did in in Kansas in the 50s, which really was a food desert, although it's a big farming state, the food, fresh food was all shipped out of state. And so we, and we didn't have, people didn't cook in a, in an, in an experimental way then either. It was all just very I don't want to say plain, ordinary, but my idea of a good meal tends not to be one with a lot of elaborate sauces and preparation, but but good food cooked in a simple way mm-hmm. so that you taste the real food. And I think that, um, I guess my own ethnic heritage, it's all the cold northern European countries, you know, England, Germany, Lithuania, Poland, the Netherlands, and I thought, oh, I want warmth in my body. I want Italian in my body. So I, I let VI have that, and it it just seemed to me to be, I mean, it's all stereotype, but a, a culture with sunshine and and warmth and more intense feeling than than people of my heritage were ever kind of felt free to express. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's unfair to both heritages perhaps although i think it rings true for vi certainly the kind of the nourishing warmth of the food seems to mean quite a lot to her um it's quite a stark contrast to what she eats next in the book um this is your third food moment and uh vi is wondering about who the killer might be um doing a little bit of detecting and like she so often has to do she has to eat food on the move um usually when she's pretty tired (laughs) 
which is why she ends up falling asleep, I suppose, at the end of this scene. Um, but perhaps you'd like to read the first few sentences of this moment for us. I sat on a ledge overlooking the lake, eating a black-eyed pea taco I'd found at a vegan restaurant near the beach. Sailboats were out on the water. Runners and bikers were passing on the path below my ledge. Was I the only person in Chicago who had to work in the summer? And then she meditates a bit on some of the things that have gone on and then uh, finishes her taco. I finished it and lay down on the ledge. Humidity was low. The sky was a clear blue with a few wispy clouds. A perfect day for Hooky. I drowsed for some minutes until I felt a sharp nip on my fingers. I sat up with a squawk. A sparrow, emboldened by my immobility, had tried pecking at the crumbs on my fingers, a signal that there is no rest for the detective. (laughs) And I guess that when I wrote this, I think when you're putting inside things in an action novel, which is like food, the food has to then also serve a role in a way in moving the story forward. And so she's trying to enjoy this minute. And actually there is uh, the neighborhood that she's in. Chicago is a very segregated city. The neighborhood that she's in is chiefly African-American. And there's a lovely vegan restaurant there, in fact, which does serve black-eyed pea tacos, which are quite delicious. Uh, So I, I let her have some of that moment of food enjoyment but then she's not allowed to play hooky the sparrow is like goading her into action mm. and so the food has to serve this role of both letting her be interior while she thinks about the case and then forcing her forward mm. Yes, I really like that. And I think, again, kind of like with the nourishing moments of the pasta and the wine in your books, there's also often more than a few moments where she's sort of grabbed food and she's eating it in the car and it's spilling all over her or um, she goes somewhere and she gets a second helping of fries or chips for the the UK listeners. Um, And I always really liked that as well about VI. That um, It felt to me like maybe one of the first times I'd heard a female character talking about food in a really matter-of-fact way. Sometimes she needs fuel, sometimes she needs enjoyment. And it was really nice to have those moments in your books, those really humanising moments of her attitude to food. I also, it's a conscious effort on my part that she eats what she wants to eat. She doesn't think about, I mean, sometimes, of course, she tries to observe her health, but she doesn't think about calories, fat, weight, body image. She just eats what she wants to eat. Mm. Yes, I think that's a really good portrait of a real person. I really appreciated that, especially, you know, when I first encountered your books when I was a teenager, it was really good to read that um, that woman and her, <laughs> her sort of very healthy attitude to life and food. So that brings us to another healthy dish. Um, Fi is eating vegetables in Kansas. <laughs> um, so this is further on into the book, and Vi uh, is attempting to track down someone quite key to the case at the heart of the book, um, and that trail has led her to Central Kansas, um, and she's stopped off at a restaurant and um, has just had quite a significant encounter that leads her to make some decisions about what she eats in the restaurant. Um, So, yeah, if you'd like to tell us a bit about this scene. 
So she's been with some of the people who whose lives were affected by the mass shooting that lies at the heart of the book and that actually has taken her to Kansas. She's in a tiny town, 3,000 people, in the middle of the state, the part of the state that nobody ever bothers to look at. Kansas is famously called flyover country by by snotty people from the coasts in America. I actually had one glorious moment where I was in New York at a dinner of allegedly very sophisticated people who were saying, isn't New York wonderful? It has this, 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 and this. And I said, yes, I often forget how much New York has to offer because I think of it as flyover country between <laughs> Chicago and London. And everybody was like, what, what? It was, so you see, V.I. gets her attitude from my own kind of chip on my shoulder. Anyway, here she is in this tiny town. The restaurant menu ran heavily to steaks and burgers. The talk of the massacre made me squeamish about looking at meat. I ordered vegetable side dishes, all grown by local farmers, the menu promised. The steaks made me remember the food I'd bought earlier. There was a steak for the dog still in my motel room refrigerator. I'd leave it there for the next guest. My whiskey came, and I sipped it, relishing the warm gold taste. While I checked my messages. I leaned against the banquette, but when I shut my eyes, women's faces spun through my mind. Lydia's in all its terror, Kelly K. Morton's anger over her son and her own fate, buried under a thick skin of apathy. Do you want those vegetables cooked more, hun? The waitress jolted me back to the room. I assured her that I liked them crunchy. Sorry, long day. We're closing soon, hun. You want another scotch? I wanted another scotch, but a second whiskey would make it hard for me to stay awake long enough to reach the motel. Wow, so this feels to me like a really poignant scene for a lot of different reasons. Um, possibly, partially because I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> so that that was a nice moment. I appreciated that. Um, but I thought V.I.'s response to um, what she'd been talking about earlier that day and the way it impacted her eating was really moving. I wondered if you wanted to say something about that. I think that when you start to think about what you're actually experiencing in the world, it does very much affect how you eat and what you eat. And that it's easy when you're writing an action novel, and my books essentially are action novels, to overlook the emotional underpinnings that that affect you in, in given moments. Um, I thought a lot about food over the last year, I'll say that um, my husband died not in a murder or anything like that, but it made me acutely aware of how cavalierly we write about death in our crime novels, and we don't stop to think about the effect that it actually has on you when when you've witnessed it. There was a struggle all through the novel. V.I.'s young goddaughter actually comes on a murdered body, and I I felt that I never did do justice to to what the shock of that would have been on anyone including on a on a young person but but it certainly does affect VI and um and I think it affects most most people when they 
you know you when you're dealing with a, a shock or a loss, you want whatever comfort food is in your repertoire. I mean, what 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 you turn to for comfort and um, for me, it might be a bowl of soup, but for someone else, it might be a hamburger and fries might be what, what they need. So you have to think it through. But definitely, when you've been exposed to bloodshed, it should not be blood. So an animal, dead animal that's all bloody, no. Uh, she she couldn't face it, although she's certainly not a vegetarian. And <laughs> her beloved downstairs neighbor who... In real life, would be about 120 years old now, but he also gets to stay alive and gets to stay to be around 90. And he fought at Anzio. Um, he's always he has three foods in his repertoire. He likes to look after vi. He likes to make. I mean, in America, we call it French toast. I don't know what you call I it would here. Call it French toast. Okay. Uh, he likes to make that for her for breakfast. But he has three things he can make for supper: spaghetti with with red sauce. Uh, grilled chicken or grilled steak, and um, <laughs> and so she always, because she loves him and doesn't want to hurt his feelings. If he's out firing up the grill, she'll she'll eat whatever he's fired up on the grill. <laughs> and he grows tomatoes as well, doesn't he? He does. the The tomatoes are a, a kind of a constant kind of feature of the VI landscape. And sometimes there's a storm that blows them down. Sometimes. Um, I don't think I've ever actually done the scene. I probably should. She must have to help him can all these tomatoes or Presumably. bottle them. Because yeah. <laughs> there'd be like 50 or 60 tomatoes left over at the end of the season that they'd all have to be <laughs> bottled up to use over the winter. Um, and speaking of other constant features of the VI landscape, um, whiskey comes up in this scene, which immediately made me think of the Golden Glow. Um, for people that haven't read the books, would you like to tell us a little bit about what the Golden Glow is and who runs it? The Golden Glow is a fictitious bar in the heart of Chicago's financial district. And it came into the books in the very first book. I based it on two different things. I sometimes feel embarrassed, like I'm not really a fiction writer, it's all real life. <laughs> but there's a wonderful bar in Boston in the Back Bay, a restaurant, the Union Oyster House. It's very old, goes back, well, by American standards, goes back a couple of hundred years. And it's where the great anti-slavery senator Daniel Webster used to hang out and it has this fabulous horseshoe-shaped bar. And so I, I gave that to the Golden Glow. With um, I had it made out of mahogany. I have no idea what the one in Boston is made <laughs> out of. And then um, the summer that I was in, one summer when I was in my early 20s, I went to New York thinking I could become a writer in New York. Instead, I became a secretary <laughs> and then ultimately went back to Chicago. But... Um, I ended up uh, finding a, an apartment to share in the heart of Harlem, which was not done for any kind of progressive reasons, but for financial reasons. It, was, it wasn't a very comfortable place to be. But there was a bar there near where I was, and the, the woman who owned the bar and was the bartender was African-American woman. She was over six feet tall, and she dressed in the most glamorous and kind of out there style with 
silver lame pantsuits and fabulous earrings that hung down to her shoulders. And so I, I kind of modeled Sal Bartel, who owns the Golden Glow and is a great friend of VI's. I kind of modeled her physically on, on this woman that I'd observed in Harlem. I have no idea what her personality was like. Sal and VI uh, serve on the board of a women's domestic violence shelter. They have a long-standing friendship. But um, VI goes there. It's another place she goes, I would say, for nurture. When I was younger, I drank a lot of whiskey. I don't tolerate alcohol so well anymore as I've gotten older. But uh, I loved whiskey, and my, my go-to whiskey was Johnny Walker Black, Black Label. Um, so that's what I gave VI. When I first started writing about her, you know, the tradition in American hard-boiled fiction is the detective is always drinking rye out of a pint bottle that he's kept in the glove compartment of his car. Um, but I thought, she gets beaten up. She has a hard time paying her bills. She should at least drink good whiskey, not <laughs> cheap, over-the-counter stuff. So I gave her Black Label from the beginning. And then when I switched to sort of up more upmarket single malts, I thought, eh, she can't follow me there. She doesn't really have the income. But <laughs> I had a fun letter eight or nine years ago, I want to say, from a man who was... He wrote to me as president of the Armagnac Society here in London. Oh, wow. And he said that he had noticed in the early books that she drank a lot of lovely Armagnac, among other alcohol, and that she'd stopped drinking. And why? And I thought, oh, my God, poor VI, here as I've aged and have stopped being able <laughs> to handle alcohol well, she's had to cut back, too. That's so not fair. So after reading his letter, I wrote him back and assured him that all would be well, all would be changed. And so I conscientiously make an effort to have her continue to, to drink spirits in the, in the books. The, she, she doesn't need to be like me. That's so wonderful. I wonder if he knows the impact that he's had on your books and the V.I.'s drinking. Yes, I can't remember his name. I should look it up so that, so well, that I can perhaps, thank him personally. Yeah, maybe he'll listen to this and realise. <laughs> um, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. I've so enjoyed hearing you talk about V.I. and the food in your books. Um, I can't recommend Sarah's book strongly enough. Um, in my opinion, she's the best crime writer that we have. Um, so you're really missing out if you've not visited her yet. And if you're already a fan, Deadland is one of my favourites and you will not be disappointed. So Sarah, thank you very much. Thank you, Elizabeth. That's incredibly generous. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please do rate and review the podcast and share where you can. And I'll see you next week.